I'd like you to take a Bible this morning, let's open it together, to 1 Samuel chapter 30 in the Old Testament. We're going to be continuing in our study of the great man of God, David, and his life, 1 Samuel chapter 30. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we have a copy of the Bible right on the back of the seat in front of you that we'd like you to borrow. We're going to be on page 213, page 213 in our copy of the Bible, or 1 Samuel chapter 30 in your copy of the Bible. Now, when I say the words uh, Nazism and I say the words Adolf Hitler, most of us would immediately connect a third word to these first two. It's the word Holocaust, referring, of course, to the mass murder of six million Jewish people, which, by the way, was two-thirds of the entire Jewish population of Europe at the time, by the Nazis during World War II. However, there are some facts about the Holocaust that most of us don't know that I think you might find very interesting. For example, did you know that Jewish people were not the only people the Nazis killed in concentration camps? In fact, the number of Slavic people and Polish people and gypsies and evangelical Christian leaders and evangelical Christians in general that the Nazis killed in the gas chambers actually exceeded the number of Jewish people that they killed. We really don't know the exact number of people that were killed in these camps. We estimate between 13 and 15 million. And the number of non-Jewish people killed were greater than the number of Jews that were killed. And the reason for this is that the Holocaust was not just about anti-Semitism. The Holocaust actually was the outworking of a philosophy that Hitler had regarding all people whom he considered to be weak and inferior. In his book, Mein Kampf, written in the 1920s, Hitler wrote that the German people were the highest, the strongest, and the purest species of humanity on earth, and that it was imperative to keep the mighty German race pure from contamination by weaker, inferior people, and that the best way to do that was simply to eliminate peoples that were weaker and inferior. And so the point is that the Holocaust was not just about the hatred of Jewish people. The Holocaust was about a way of seeing weaker people. It was about a way of dealing with vulnerable, disabled, infirm people, at least in the mind of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Now, when we look in the Bible, friends, what we find is that God also has a philosophy about how to treat people who are weak, who are helpless, who are powerless, and who are vulnerable. Thank God it is an entirely different philosophy than the Nazis had. And we want to talk about that today because it forms the nucleus of something that David does in the passage that we have in front of us. So we want to look at the passage, and then, of course, we'll ask the really important question, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay, so a little bit of background here. Uh, Remember that the Philistines and the Israelite army under Saul are shaping up to have a huge battle. David has been living with Achish, one of the kings of the Philistines, for 16 months. And Achish expects him now to go into battle with the Philistines and fight against his own people. David initially goes along with the army because he doesn't have any choice of the Philistines. But God intervenes and David ends up getting sent home before the battle begins. And when he gets back to his city, a little town called Ziklag, he finds that the Amalekites have raided the city and have taken his wife, his children, the wives and the children of the 600 men who were with him, all their possessions and carried them away. And so David sets out with his men in pursuit of these Amalekites. And that's where we pick up the story. Look with me at verse 9. Chapter 30, verse 9. 
And David and the 600 men who were with him came to the Besor Ravine, where some men stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and the 400 men continued the pursuit. Now remember, the Amalekites had a huge head start on David and his men. So David and his men had to go at an unusually rapid pace to try to catch up. To put it in military terms, we would say that they were marching double time. And when they got to this Besor ravine, some of the guys just couldn't make it anymore. They just couldn't physically keep up. You say, well, on. How do you explain that? Well, I explain it by too many Twinkies and too little life cycle. I mean, it's pretty simple why they couldn't keep up. But they couldn't. So they stopped right there and 400 of the men kept on going with David. Well, I'm going to summarize the rest of the story. They ended up catching up with the Amalekites, ambushing them, defeating them. They got all their wives back, all their children back, not only their own possessions back, but they got back all the Amalekite possessions on top of it. They had this huge plunder that they ended up with. Verse 20, let's skip down there. Verse 20. And it says that David took all the flocks and the herds of the Amalekites and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, this is David's plunder. Now, so far, so good. But here's where the trouble starts. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor Ravine. And they, these men came out to meet David and the people who were with him. And as David and his men approached, he greeted them. David did. Verse 22, but all the evil and trouble, all evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, hey, because these men did not go out with us, we're not going to share with them any of the plunder we recovered. Each man may take his own wife and his children, but that's it. We're not giving them anything else. Now, you understand what's happening here, right? The other 400 men who went on, when they got back, they said, now, wait a second. We were the guys who sucked it up and kept going, not you guys. We were the ones who went into battle and risked our lives to get all this stuff, not you guys. You guys sat back here, you bunch of weaklings, and you just sat back here and drank water and laid in the sun and relaxed while we were putting our lives on the line. So here are your wives, here are your children, we don't want them, but for the rest of this stuff, you're not getting any of it. Well, David, verse 23, immediately jumps in and says, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. God has protected us, and God has handed over to us the forces that came against us. God has been gracious to us. God has been kind to us, David said. He said to his men, Don't you, don't you remember what God did? We found that old abandoned slave that they left to die out in the wilderness, and he was the one that told us where the Amalekites were so we could ambush them. If we hadn't had that happen, a lot of us would be dead today. A lot of our wives and our children would have been dead today. God has been gracious to us. Now, we cannot turn around and be ungracious and unkind to these men whose hearts were with us. I mean, they wanted to go. It's just their bodies were too weak to keep up. Verse 24. He said, the share of the man who stayed with the supplies is going to be the same as the one who went down in the battle. All will share alike. We're not going to penalize these men just because they were weaker than us. And David made this a statute and an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. David overruled his men and saw to it that these weaker men got to share equally in the reward of the victory. 
Now, friends, in doing what he did, David displayed a compassion for the weak and a concern for the frail that was virtually unprecedented in the ancient Near East of his time. In the ancient Near East of David's day, weak people, frail people, helpless people were simply expendable commodities. There were no food stamps. There was no welfare program. There was no handicapped accessible facilities. If you were a weak, a frail, or a helpless person, they just did to you what the Amalekite did to that slave in this story. They just throw you away like you were a used piece of baggage. You say, well, Lon, if that's the case, then my question is, why and where did David come up with such a different attitude towards weak people than everybody else around him had? Well, the answer is found in the Bible. The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. What that means is that David was a man who understood the heart of God. And in particular, he understood the heart of God for weak people and helpless people and frail people. I'd like to take you on a tiny little journey through the Old Testament as we look at the heart of God for these kinds of people put on display for us. I want to begin back in Exodus 22, if you'll turn there with me. Exodus chapter 22, it's page 56 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 56 or Exodus chapter 22. And I've just chosen a few verses. I mean, you know, there are, there are scores of verses. I've just chosen a couple, but you'll get the point. Exodus 22, look at verse 21. Exodus 22, verse 21, page 56. Here's what it says. It says, Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt one day. Remember? Verse 22, And do not take advantage of the widows and the orphans who were the most helpless, the most vulnerable section of society. If you do, God says, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you. And your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Flip over to the Psalm, Psalm 68, if you would. It's page 411 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 411, Psalm 68. Psalm 68, and look with me at verse 5. Psalm 68, verse 5. A father to the fatherless... And a defender of the widows is God in His holy dwelling. Flip over to Psalm 72, just a couple of pages, and look at verse 12. Psalm 72, verse 12. It says, For He will deliver the needy who cry out, and the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. Why? Because precious is the blood of the weak and the helpless and the powerless and the vulnerable in His sight. Precious is their blood in His sight. And I could give you many, many, many more verses, but the point is clear enough that the downcast, the powerless, the helpless, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor, the abused people of the world are the object of God's special care, His special compassion, His special concern. David knew this. He understood the heart of God. And that's why he treated these weaker men with the compassion and the mercy that he did. Now, may I stop and simply say to you that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that this forms the, the whole basis for why God sent Jesus Christ to earth for you and for me. Because spiritually speaking, in the eyes of God, we are all powerless. 
We are all helpless. We are all totally weak in terms of ever being able to earn eternal life, earn our way into heaven. It cannot happen. We are completely powerless and helpless. But because of God's compassion and because of His mercy for weak people, He sent Jesus Christ for us. And that's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, because there is no way you and I could ever have gotten eternal life or gotten into heaven on our own. So what we're talking about here, the very principle of God's passion and concern for the weak and the helpless, forms the very basis of the cross of Jesus Christ and why He came. And I hope you'll think about that. Jesus would not have come if there were any other way you could do this, my friend. He came because you are helpless, we are powerless, and that's why He came and died on the cross for us. Well, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. Now, you had last week off, so I know you've got to kind of get back in the groove here. But what was the, what's our really important question? So what? So what? All right. <laughs> so what, Lon? Big deal. I mean, it's wonderful that David was so nice to these men, but this doesn't make any difference in my life, does it really? Well, I think it makes a huge difference to know what David knew about how God feels about weak people. I don't know if you follow any Major League Baseball team, if you're the fan of some Major League team. I mean, a lot of us right now are jettisoning the Orioles, by the way. But other than that, you know, um, I, I don't know. I am not a Boston Red Sox fan. Maybe there's a few of you masochistic people here who are Boston Red Sox fans. But I am not one. However... I am a fan of Mo Vaughn, who plays first base for the, for the Boston Red Sox. And I'll tell you why I'm a fan of Mo Vaughn. I'm a fan of his because of an article I read a few years ago about something he did. Listen to what Time Magazine, as it described it, said. It said, several years ago, there was a young boy in Boston Children's Hospital named Jason Leader. Jason was 10 years old. He was suffering from a very rare form of cancer. It was terminal, as a matter of fact. And he was real depressed because it was his, his 11th birthday and he wasn't allowed to leave the hospital and go home to be with his family because he was too weak and he was too sick. Somebody in the hospital found out that he was a huge Mo Vaughn fan. And so the, uh, they, they, they decided it would be wonderful if Mo Vaughn might call him in the hospital and just say hi to him. Well, at the time, the uh, Boston Red Sox were out playing in Anaheim, out in California, but somehow this lady from the hospital got in touch with Mo Vaughn, and that evening, the evening of his birthday, the phone rang in his room, and it was Mo Vaughn calling from California to wish Jason Leader happy birthday. And they talked for about 15 minutes. And as part of the conversation, Mo told him, he said, tonight, he said, Jason, I'm going to try to hit a home run for you tonight. Well, now, Jason had to go to bed because, of course, the game was on the West Coast and was late. But that night, Mo Vaughn actually hit a home run. And when he got back to Boston, he, uh, he, he had Jason, he worked it out for Jason to come and join him in the dugout at Fenway Park. And Time Magazine goes on to say the doctors had postponed a scheduled round of chemotherapy because they wanted Jason to be strong for that day. His dad said Jason was a little tired, but he didn't seem tired when his pal Mo signed some baseballs for him. He didn't seem tired when Vaughn grabbed his little hand and took him for a walk. We're going in the locker room to see the guys, Mo told him, and the press were told that they were not invited. This was a moment for Mo and Jason only. At one point during the day, someone handed Mo Vaughn the ball that he had hit for the home run in California, and he signed it to Jason. Stay strong, my friend, Mo Vaughn. Last year, Jason Leader died of cancer. 
Movon took the day off and went to his funeral and was a pallbearer at this young man's funeral. That's why I'm a Movon fan. And, and, you know, I don't know if Movon's a Christian or not. Never had the chance to talk to him about it. Never heard about it in the paper one way or the other. But I'm telling you, Movon understands something about the heart of God for the weak and the needy and the frail people of our world. And he understands what God wants us as Christians to understand about our responsibility to these people and about the heart of God for these people. Listen to what God said, Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. He said, when you're harvesting in the field and an ear of corn falls to the ground, do not go back and pick it up. Leave it for the strangers, the widow, the fatherless, the poorest and most vulnerable people in society. Leave it on the ground for them. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hand. You remember the wonderful story in the Bible of Ruth and Boaz? How Ruth is picking up corn in the field that was left behind because it's the only thing she and her widowed mother-in-law Naomi had to eat. And she happens to end up in the field of Boaz and she meets him and he's, 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 he's handsome and he's, he's godly and he's rich and best of all, he's available. You know what I'm saying? And... Um, and they fall in love and they get married. It's a wonderful story. Well, it was not an accident that those stalks of corn and those ears of corn were on the ground in his field. That was not an accident. Boaz was a godly man. He understood the heart of God for the weak and the needy of society. And he made a point, if you read the story, to tell his harvesters to make sure they left food on the ground so that people like Ruth, who were totally destitute, could come through and pick it up. I love what Proverbs says. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And friends, this is why Corrie Ten Boom hid Jewish people from the Nazis during World War II, because she understood the heart of God for weak and vulnerable people. This is why. Mother Teresa gave her life for the destitute children of the world because she understood the heart of God for the weak and the vulnerable people of our world. This is why the great hymn writer Fanny Crosby, who wrote hymns like Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, and All the Way My Savior Leads Me. In fact, she wrote over 9,000 hymns. She was the most prolific hymn writer in the history of the church here in America. This is why this woman would go down every week to the Bowery Mission in the Bowery section of New York City and would play music and serve food and pray with bums and alcoholics and prostitutes and homeless men and women because she understood the heart of God for the weak and vulnerable people of our world. This is why former President Jimmy Carter and his wife Rosalind go around dedicating their life to Habitat for Humanity and for helping poor and needy people because when a person claims to be a Christian, the Bible is clear. That God calls us to be helpers of the helpless, defenders of the weak, protectors of the powerless, and friends of the frail. This is what God calls us to do. They say, well, Lon, I have a question to ask. My question is, as a Christian, how do I get to be more this way? I mean, uh, I understand what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying, but how do I get to have more compassion on needy people? How do I develop a greater tenderness towards people that are hurting? How do I do that? I mean, is there a course I can take at Nova? Uh, is there a pill I can swallow? Do you just pray about it and God drops compassion whiffle dust on you or something and you just or get more compassion? How, how does this happen? I mean, how does God get a person there? 
Well, the Bible gives us an answer to that question, my friends, although I have to tell you, I'm not sure you're going to like the answer God gives. But to show you that answer for the last passage of the morning, could I ask you to turn into the New Testament with me? To the second letter that Paul wrote the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 816, if you're using our copy of the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And God's going to answer our question. How does God get us? How does God expand our capacity to show compassion and mercy to the vulnerable people of our world? Well, God's going to tell us right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 3 with me. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Verse 4. Who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can connect with and comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. My friends, do do we understand what God's telling us here? What God is telling us is the way that He produces the ability to connect with and to comfort other people, to show compassion and mercy to others, is by sending us, verse 4 says, trouble, suffering, pain, heartache, affliction, Because when he does that, he increases our capacity to come alongside other people, it says here, who are facing trouble. And instead of just giving them a cheap Bible verse and a pat on the shoulder and a God bless you, I'll pray for you. To be able to really connect with them and to bring the comfort of God to bear on on their life, the hope of God to bear on their life that you've just experienced as God's brought it to bear on your life going through that trouble that God put you through. I had a man years ago who's with the Lord now who used to always say to me, Hey, Lon, never forget, suffering burns out shallowness. You know, it wasn't until the last few years I ever understood what he really meant. What he meant is that suffering teaches us how to connect with other people in pain. Suffering teaches us how to feel compassion for the weak and the helpless and the disabled instead of feeling contempt for them. Suffering is what makes us able to be useful to God in connecting with hurting people in our world. Because people who have the most compassion for the weak, I have learned, is people are people who've been weak. People who have the biggest heart for the needy in our world are people who've been needy. And people who are most able to comfort you when you're in pain are always the people who've been through the most pain themselves. There was a wonderful story in People magazine a couple months ago about Gene Stallings. Gene Stallings was the head football coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide. He just retired this year. But the story tells about how growing up, Gene Stallings was a hard-nosed football player. He was the captain of his high school team. He was the captain of his college team at Texas A&M. He played under Paul Bear Bryant there at Texas A&M. And in his years as a player, in fact, he was so obsessed with football as a player that he even postponed his wedding because he had a football game. This was true. True story. As a player, later as a coach in his early years, the story tells about how Gene Stallings had absolutely zero tolerance for anyone who wasn't outstanding, anyone who wasn't just a cut above. If you weren't the best of of the best, Stallings had no time for you, and when he was a coach, he had no place for you on his team. 
Then in 1962, the article goes on to say, Stallings became the father of a Down syndrome little boy named Johnny. And then the article describes how this little boy has changed his life. He said in the article, those first ten years were hard ones. A bottle could take hours. Potty training took five years. We learned to rejoice in the smallest of victories, Stallings said, like the time Johnny took his first steps at age three and a half while holding on to the family dog. And now here comes the really intriguing part of the story. He says, all of this struggle and all of this pain that I went through with my little boy began to change my personal and professional attitude. Listen to what he says. He said, all of a sudden, I began to develop a whole lot more tolerance for the less gifted. If a kid trying out for the football team wasn't big or wasn't strong enough, but gave everything he had, I would let him stay on the team anyway and just do what he could. Doesn't sound like the same guy, does it? And now Gene Stallings retired, runs the Stallings Institute in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which ministers to hundreds of children under the age of five that have cerebral palsy and Down syndrome. He donates all of the speaking money and all the book royalties that he gets to taking care of these children. And, and I read this wonderful article and I, and I sat back and I said, wow, this is an incredible article. How did God transform Gene Stallings from an intolerant perfectionist into a soft and compassionate man of grace like he is today? How did God do it? God did it by giving him the pain and the struggle and the heartache of a little boy that had Down syndrome. I mean, he had no time at all for weak people, no place in his life for weak people. So what did God do? God gave him a weak person to live with. And look how God changed the man's life. You know, I meet so many Christians who declare to me that they want God to use them to reach other people for Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. But you know, one of the most powerful ways God has of reaching people for Christ is by the touch of a compassionate Christian. And what God is telling us right here in the Bible, here in 2 Corinthians, is the way God creates compassionate Christians is through suffering. Now friends, when it comes to pain, let's be honest, we're all chickens. All of us. But I have learned that the grace of God is sufficient. And I have also learned that there are some levels of Christian growth and there are some levels of usefulness to God that you and I as Christians, that it is only available to us through the doorway of suffering. There's no other way to get there. G. Campbell Morgan, I don't know if you know the name. I'd like to close by telling you this. G. Campbell Morgan, wonderful Bible teacher, great man of God. Um... And G. Campbell Morgan, in his elderly years, tells a story about how he went to fill in at this church that was between pastors as a visiting speaker. And at the end of his sermon, uh, this seasoned man of God came down, and the people of the church came up and began telling him about the new minister that they had coming. What a wonderful minister this was, and how good he was with people, and how personable he was, what a wonderful communicator he was, how erudite, how scholarly he was, how, how he was able to take the Word of God and explain it, they went on and on and on about this new minister. Campbell Morgan said nothing. Just listened. And at the very end, when they got done uh, talking about all the accolades of this young man they had coming, this seasoned man of God simply said, he said, you know, he may be good now, but he'll be better after he suffers. 
Isn't that an amazing comment? He may be good now, but he'll be better after he suffers. And my friends, if you're here this morning as a Christian and God has you in the middle of some suffering, and I'm sure there are many of us here for whom the words suffering and turmoil and affliction and pain are not just words. I mean, that's what we're living right now. I want to challenge you to, as hard as it is, to embrace it. I want to challenge you as hard as it is to thank God for it. Because if you're a Christian, it's not an accident. You're not the victim of random fate or bad luck. God is up to something in your life. God is trying to do what G. Campbell Morgan said. He's trying to make you better. He'll be better after he suffers, and so will you. You'll be better able to connect to people in pain after you suffer. You'll be better able to extend compassion and mercy to hurting people after you suffer. You'll be better able to touch non-Christians' lives with the love of Jesus Christ after you suffer. Frankly, you'll just be a better human being after you suffer. And a better representative of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth after you suffer. Campbell Morgan was right. You'll be better after you suffer. And none of us want to hear that, because none of us want to suffer. None of us want to be told that. All we want to do, and our prayer is always, God, get rid of this as fast as you can. I don't want it. Take it away. You know, adios. Get it out of here. But folks, God is not Santa Claus. God is not the genie in the lamp. He is our Heavenly Father, and part of His job is to make us better as people, as followers of Christ. And there are certain ways you can't make a Christian better except through the doorway of suffering. I'm hoping as a result of your being here today that God will change your outlook on pain. God will change your outlook on suffering as a Christian. Folks, God never wastes an experience. He knows what He's doing. And if He has sent suffering your way, He sent it your way to make you better. So by faith, by faith, I want to challenge you. Embrace it. Thank God for it. And tell God it's a wonderful thing that He loves you enough that He's getting involved in your life to help you become better as a person, as a Christian. Let's pray together. Father, for many people who are sitting here today, the words affliction, pain, heartache, disappointment, loss, suffering, exhaustion, discouragement. These are not just words. They describe what we live every day, many of us here. And Father, I want to pray for people who are in that life situation that you would change their lives because they came to meet with you today. That you would change their whole perspective on what's going on in their life. That you would give them hope. That you would provide some meaning for their pain. That you would help them to understand that that you're up to something good in their life. You're trying, as G. Campbell Morgan said, to make them better. And even for those of us here who may not be in that situation right this moment, the truth of the matter is, before it's all over, we're going to be. Because there's not a Christian I know that at some point you don't take through the deep waters to make them better. And so, Father, my prayer is that instead of resenting and hating and reacting to pain with bitterness, 
that you would change our whole outlook and make it a biblical outlook. Give us a biblical worldview on pain. And enable us, because of our faith in what you tell us in the Bible, to reach out and embrace it as hard as that is. To thank you for it as hard as that is. Even to rejoice in it as hard as that is. Because we know you, our Heavenly Father, are trying to make us better. Lord Jesus, change our lives because we were here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.